today we are back with just me and Steven. Steven and, and I. Well, and, of course, our favorite actor in the world, Michael Gambon. He, he, of course, is here, too, for this lovely, this lovely podcast episode. If not in body, certainly in confused, angry, cold, distant spirit. Very true. One of my, um, so at the end of our Chamber of Secrets discussion, we talked about what we, kind of our thoughts for Prisoner of Azkaban previous to watching it. Your first statement was, not excited to see Michael Gambon, would rather have Fox gouge my eyes out. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, so obviously today we are talking about Prisoner of Azkaban, the third installment of the Harry Potter movie franchise. Um, before we dive into all the all the nitty gritty and kind of go kind of beat by beat, what were your overarching thoughts on the viewing experience? I enjoyed it more than I normally do. Um, as I had said in the previous pod, this movie specifically is one that I tend to not like very much because I loved the book and it was my favorite book when I was younger. So I critiqued this one a lot more than the other movies just because it's probably the book I had read the most. But I did enjoy it a lot more. This is the point where things get darker. You're really starting to get a story. So I liked it. It was it was good. It was fine. I think a couple things I'll say maybe specific to you know this being a book that you love therefore you critiqued the movie with more intensity. The thing I've tried to do with these rewatches but also having rewatched the movies a fair bit recently is trying to isolate my book thoughts from the viewing experience and trying to put myself in the mindset of the production team for the movie and just trying to understand what they are trying to convey with the movie, not necessarily how it translates from the book. And I think there are, and we can dive into them in a little bit here, right? There are a couple scenes I think that really, really well establish the movie's POV for Prisoner of Azkaban and what differentiates it from the book. Um, you know, the other thing... I thought was this movie felt a lot more like the first movie of the rest of the series. Um, You know, this, this movie is so drastically different from the first two different director, different director of photography, different production team, right? David Heyman, JKR, Steve Cloves are still there behind the scenes, but you know, Alfonso Cuaron comes in and, and as this has been well covered on this podcast and every Harry Potter podcast known to mankind um, completely redesigns the, the visual, palette and and aesthetic of the movies um so knowing how the rest of the series progresses visually this movie felt a lot more like the establishing movie um relative to the stone and chamber now i agree with that and what you said about like looking at the movie as something separate from the book almost i i've learned to do that and i learned to do that at a younger age but like after you said that i'm like I don't think I, when I first saw this movie, I don't think I was in that mindset yet where I was looking at as something different and I really didn't return to this movie a lot. So this time I definitely look, because I haven't reread the book. Although in the last podcast I said I was going through a reread, 
another book series came into our lives that has stopped that reread. So I haven't gotten to it. So I really don't remember the book as much as I would like to. So I kind of had more of a fresh brain going into it without having reread the book. Do you want to guess what the very first note on my on my notes for this movie uh, reads? Does it have anything to do with a Jamaican accent? Whoa, you skipped a whole lot of stuff. No, no, <laughs> yeah. no. No, my first note is Masturbation 101. That's literally what it says. I should have. You know, when I was watching it, I was going, Stephen's going to have some comments here. Well, and look, I know we just did this whole kind of dialogue here about how we dissociate the books and the movies. The books are a lot more explicit about what's going on under Harry's covers. I mean, he spills ink that gets all over his sheets and he has to worry about hiding the ink blots from Aunt Petunia. It's a lot more explicit than the movie is. That said, scene, open, right? Page one of of the script, uh, right, is Harry underneath the covers trying to get his wand to light properly in the dark of the night. Um, So that is just straight up there's a lot of more than lot. trying to get it to light. Well, yeah, he's trying to get. He's yeah, added some more spells. Also, speaking. Also, speaking of spells, um, first thing I noticed again, not trying to do this whole book movie nonsense, but Lumos Maxima is not a thing. It's just not. not a thing. Like it's I even looked it up. Me. I even looked it up on the Harry Potter wiki just to confirm that like I wasn't losing my mind. And like, there's an entry there that says like it was created for the third and sixth movies and never appears in the books. And I'm not trying to sit here and be like, Hey, you know, book canon is the purest thing. And we have to like, but things like spell work feels like that. It's should like be one word. Like yeah. what, what was the reason behind adding one extra word? Yeah. And, and even right. Even the, the efficacy of the spell itself aside, it just feels like this, like the magic is kind of core to the entire ideology of of the books and the original IP. Therefore, we probably shouldn't mess with that. Like, of all the things you're going to change, I'm fine with a lot of changes. That one just felt like an unnecessary one. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. Um, another thing I noticed right at the start, Harry grew up. Like, first two movies, he's like a young boy. He's a kid. He, he's... I mean, look, he's under the covers trying to light his wand. He, you know, he he grew up. Um, he's also like his hair is going more towards what I expect in the books. Like he's got the out of control hair. Um, this, this movie as a whole, I felt like the trio really were in like their characters' bodies, like really kind of figuring it even down to like, I know this is jumping ahead, but like how they wore their uniforms, a little scruffy, like how a normal kid would look while going through school and finding their own way to add to it. Speaking of out of control things, uh, Aunt Marge. Um, One thing I took from that entire scene or set of scenes, the music when Aunt Marge is blowing up and going away and Vern's trying to is great. Like, it's this, like, whimsical, fun, like, almost like a carnival kind of comedy of errors music that mm-hmm. also ties in a lot of the thematic of Potter, but not in, like, a – it meshes really well. Um, yeah, the music was really, really well done throughout this movie. I've always enjoyed this soundtrack as one of my tops of the movies. 
This was also, I realized the last time I watched this movie was at the live CineArts performance with the live orchestra doing it. It was the last one I saw um, prior to all this other stuff going on in the world. Yeah, and this is the final time that John Williams graces the series with his music because Goblet of Fire, Patrick Doyle comes in. Um, And this is just a really nice coda to John Williams' contribution. Obviously, not dissimilar to Chris Columbus or, I guess, as we're about to talk about, Alfonso Cuaron. John Williams really helped set the tone for the rest of the series and the extended Wizarding World with his music. Um, Buckbeak's Flight will always be one of my favorites. Yeah, that was good. Um, Here's a continuity thing I've noticed throughout the series, and the first time I think we notice it maybe is in Chamber. Uh, But the first time in this movie I noticed it is right here kind of sequentially when Harry is threatening Vernon coming down the stairs. His wand's in his left hand. And throughout the series, there are times, like I can distinctly recall, if you watch the scenes going all the way ahead to Deathly Hallows and they're running through the woods away from the Snatchers, there maybe it was the way they just pieced together edits and they had, cause there's times where they're holding their wands in their left hand, casting spells in the right hand. And the continuity is all over the place. And that's yeah. a really tiny thing that no one should care about, but I notice it every single time. And like, maybe it was just like a blocking thing where they needed it a certain way and it looked better in one hand over the other. And they're like, people aren't going to dissect this movie this way. Yeah, they are. Yeah, little did they know that we were going to have a mediocre podcast like 15 years later where we were going to intensely dissect every single scene of these freaking movies. Um, The estate playground that Harry is sitting in front of waiting for the night bus. It is, and look, I know that estate playgrounds largely are identical, but it felt odd to me that it was an identical playground to the Order of the Phoenix one that he and Dudley's gang kind of have their little you know, brush up on in the opening of Order of the Phoenix, except for the fact that that one's in like the middle of nowhere in the middle of some like wheat field that I don't think exists in like that part of England. Um, This one is just in the middle of the estate, which makes a lot more sense, but it was odd to me that they like inch by inch, square foot by square foot, they were the exact same playground. Um, But for whatever reason in the fifth one, they decided, Hey, let's put it out in the middle of freaking nowhere. In an alleyway. Yeah. Love the night bus. Love the night bus. I will always love the night bus. It's probably one of my favorite transitions from book to movie. I think they did so well with it. And the night bus bus music is always so fun. Yeah. Stan Chunpike, like top-notch casting and acting. Question for you, because I've never really been able to piece this together between the books, the movies, et cetera. What is Ernie's deal, the driver? So I'll tell you my theory. I'll tell you. You've talked about your theory about him. Yeah. And and Lord knows I don't remember what I said before. So I don't know if what I'm about to say is going to contradict it or just double down on it. So, you know, uh, take that for what you will. But the way that they portray Ernie in the books and the movies, for that matter, is almost like he's this enchanted, semi-sentient like mindless character who like just knows how to drive the night bus and the shrunken head like controls his mind. Cause it, 
if you really want to follow this down its rabbit hole, the shrunken head's like, take her away, Ernie. And then Ernie goes, Ernie, old lady at 12 o'clock, right? Like the shrunken head is dictating all of the moves and Ernie is doing them really, really well. And he has like a high skill level, but you never, I've never once read or watched Azkaban and gotten the sense that Ernie is, Ernie, that Ernie is like a sentient being. I feel he's like he's like a super imperious. Is you he know, like cursed child trolley witch? Yeah, I don't. Well, that's a whole different thing. Um, <laughs> I, there's something off to me about him. I think in my mind, he's just like a senile old retired man that just goes through the motions. But I guess there's a plus. I don't know the reasoning behind having like, I don't know. He's really there just to drive the bus so Stan Shumpike can talk to Harry. Did you notice the entryway to the Leaky Cauldron? Yes. Yeah, because it's not the it's not the same one. It's just yeah. some random side door. I didn't fully understand. Um, one of the things that bothers me about this movie every time, Tom. I love Tom the barkeep in movie one. I don't know what the choice was to make him like this daft, like Igor sidekick type of character. Okay, I love Tom here. I think some of the best scenes of this movie are like the two sequentially where Tom takes him off the night bus and then in Fudge's office, question mark, inside of the Leaky Cauldron, which I still don't fully understand, when he's like pointing at the different soup and all the things he and like then he goes, <laughs> I, I, I think the comedic brilliance of whoever that actor was just top notch. I loved every single beat that Tom, the, the barkeep has in, in this movie. I guess that's fair. So, so Fudge's office, Fudge's office, right? Um, why does the minister for magic have an office in the that's hotel? Down the street from where he actually works. Yeah, that's also bizarre. Um, <laughs> it's it's not like it's like oh this is my portable office because it takes me forever to get to work. It's you can literally walk outside in ten minute walk. You'll be at your office. It would be like what's like a good comp here. It would be like Joe Biden having an office in Union Station in D.C. because it's closer to the trains, or it would be like De Blasio having an office in Penn Station. Or LaGuardia, like it, there's, there's no right. It just doesn't no make sense. Reason. Doesn't make sense. It's uh, just like we don't want to move to another spot, but we need to have this conversation in this random office, even though there's tons of other spots you can have this conversation. Yeah, um, that conversation though is this is the first like this is the prime scene for me where I think the movie lays out its perspective on what Prisoner of Azkaban is about and how it differs from the book. So people who have read the books will remember that there is this glorious like chapter of Harry just exploring Diagon Alley by himself. And there's a whole now aborted Florian Fortescue plot line. And he goes and gets his books from Flourish and Blots. And you get a lot of really cool color about life in Diagon Alley. The movies decide for Fudge to say, you know, by the way, we, I took the liberty of getting you all your school books it's best if you don't wander. And I think, never mind the fact that they cut down on a lot of Harry exploring Diagon Alley, which I think is, you know, screen time that they couldn't have afforded for whatever reason. This is where the movies differ from the books. 
because I think the movies are, are laying out this whole theme that Harry is trapped, right? The whole, the whole movie, Harry is trapped by adults and he doesn't know why. And that is, I think, the tension that you're meant to understand for the whole film. And that's why he gravitates towards Lupin, even though they are missing a lot of scenes of like Harry getting to know Lupin. And all of a sudden, Harry's just in the forest with his professor and like, it's a whole other thing. Um, but this movie really wants you to feel the tension of Harry not understanding why he's being penned in and trapped by all these adults. I can see that. Like, it's it's a good move to make that start. I would have loved to have those Diagon Alley scenes of just exploring and having Fortescue. Like, I just well, yeah, but it go, it goes but against what they're trying the to reasoning. convey. Right, because again, if you want to talk about the second scene that in my mind really hammers this this message home, is Harry riding Buckbeak. Because in the books, Harry's deeply uncomfortable the whole time. Harry wants no part of it. In the movies, they have that scene over the lake where Harry does the I'm the king of the world kind of arms kind of, you know. Freedom. And Harry's free. He He's out on his own. Like, and I think that's, again, meant to reinforce the adults are telling me I can't do this. I can't go here. I, here I am, you know, riding. You know, anywho. No, it's telling me why. I just know I can't, but other students can. Yeah. So I, I, I think that is the crucial difference. If I'm putting on my book to movie lens, the movie really tries to get across. As we see, if we're going back sequentially in this next scene where Mr. Weasley has this private conversation with Harry, even though it's three feet away from the breakfast table. Um, it's, it's yeah. Um, but it's this whole thing of, I need to warn you, you can't go out and do this thing. This person is bad news. I can't tell you why. Yeah. I'll give you vague details to warn you to not do it, but I'm not going to tell you why you are a target. If the movie's opening scene was masturbatory 101 and the theme of this movie beyond being penned in is puberty, Ron, when Harry comes down the stairs and Ron sees him and goes, Harry, like puberty 101, like, (laughs) holy crap. I mean, throughout this movie, there are so many times where it's like, oh yeah, these people are, these are kids in transition. It was just so deeply like, like visceral and evident. Uh, one thing I want to say, one thing I want to say, actually, if we're talking about puberty and all this good stuff, I'm, I'm going to sound like a crotchety old man here. So, you know, you are a crotchety old man. Well, I'm really going to sound like it throughout the, so what year three, they're what? 13. Yeah. Cause they're 11 year one, 13, 14. Yeah. They're 11 year one. They're 12 year two. They're 13 year three. That's the whole sequence. They dress very, like, I don't want to say conservative, but just very normal. Like, they dress, like they're not wearing, like, Hermione's not wearing, like, skin-tight, super short, revealing stuff. The boys, like, they, the, my point is they all, throughout the films, writ large, not just this movie, they dress like kids or they dress like young teens. I mean, like. Hermione, 13, 14 years old, was dressed how I was dressed as a 13 or 14 year old. So that's where I'm going Less with sweaters. this. Well, that's, well, you, when you were 13, 14, the British were invading and all that stuff. So, uh, you know, different, different era. But where I'm going with all of this is 
when I go walk around like my town center here, <laughs> you see people who are clearly 13, 14, 15 dressed like freaking Kardashians. And like, I'm not judging that you wear whatever the hell you want. I'm not saying you gotta, you know, people can wear whatever the hell they want. I don't really care. But just from like a, holy crap, has society changed kind of POV? Like, it's just, it's wild to me. Well, I get on like a greater scale of that is that if you walk through a store for that age range, that's all there is. Are you walking through a lot of preteen stores? Well, like if you're walking through a department store, sometimes you have to walk through the like junior section. No, see, if I, as a 27-year-old bearded single male, walks by myself through a junior section, the security team comes and talks to me. So I, I, I can't. <laughs> There's aisles. It's not like I'm like weaving through the. Yeah, but I try but my also, best. But also, like, I'm over on the girl side of the store. Yeah, so like, I try my best to avoid any yeah, sort you're of not perception gonna... of like, but like creepy guy walking through kids. Yeah, no. Yeah, that that is that's a little questionable. But also that's that's kind of what's available and it's harder now to find those things that are not revealing. Speaking of things that are revealing, on original watch, it doesn't mean much, but on rewatch, Hogwarts Express, Mrs. Weasley running up to the train and like throwing scabbers at Ron, being like, don't lose him, is like just over the top if you're rewatching this thing because it's like, oh, well, look how much... <coughs> Speaking of things that are revealing, Mrs. Weasley running at the Hogwarts Express with scabbers and handing him off to Ron saying, don't lose him. Now, on original watch, doesn't really mean much. On a rewatch, it's the most nail you over the head kind of scene because it's simultaneous, like either just the act of almost forgetting scabbers. It's almost like, well, what if? But then the flip side is her saying, don't lose him. It's like, okay. I mean, come on. But like, it's it's also it's it's a weird scene because also like we've already seen Ron and Hermione fighting about Crookshanks and Scabbers, and then he forgets his rat after this whole ordeal of it's gonna eat the rat. I will say on the topic of Ronald Billius Weasley, this is the movie where I think he really kind of locks in his comedic chops throughout the series. I mean, so many scenes, including on the train, right? He's a raving murderous lunatic. Thanks, Ron. Like Ron's timing and delivery of all of his funny lines are just great. And, and they are throughout the rest of the series. But I think this is the first movie where he really kind of establishes that. This is jumping really far ahead. But one of my favorite lines from him in this movie, and he's like, when he's talking about his leg, he's like, they're going to have to cut it off. It's too late. Oh, that's that's like, that's another puberty one-on-one. We'll get to that. Yeah, I have, I have that one noted. Um, yeah, I did Hogwarts Express. Yeah, Hogwarts Express. I didn't love a couple things about this. And I know, again, this does follow the book. So I guess it's also something maybe I have a quibble with in the books. Them deciding to talk openly in front of this hopefully, supposedly asleep, random R.J. Lupin fellow. It's like, I feel like you probably wouldn't be talking about Sirius Black and all this like secret, quote unquote, stuff in front of a rando. Especially um, considering like how quickly he wakes up when there's a Dementor. It's not like, oh, what's happening? It's. Spells flying, I'm awake. So the other, the, so exactly. The other thing I didn't love, we're talking about the loop and introduction here, and then we'll talk about the Dementors next, is after Harry comes to, 
And Lupin's like, here's this chocolate. It helps. Uh, and then he goes to have a word with the conductor. At no point is Harry like, hey, who are you? Like, it feels like he should have been like, who are you? At which point, either Lupin could have said, um, the new professor, or Hermione and Ron could have been like, oh, he told us while you were asleep, we'll fill you in, don't worry. Yeah, Instead, you don't actually just like, find out who he is until the Great Hall when Hermione's like, oh, it makes sense why he gave you chocolate. Yeah, instead, it's just like, hey, this random guy who was asleep in your you cabin candy. for three hours is giving you loose chocolate out of his pocket and then running away. Yeah, <laughs> that is very questionable. What did you make of the Dementor vis- visualization that we got because this is the first time we see them. Um, yeah, how'd you feel about their portrayal? I think they did a good job with the portrayal. I think it could have gone very wrong. I feel like there's options to make it better. Uh, I'm glad it's not the option of what we see in the ride at Universal. But I th- like. I do think it works. Yeah, I I remember being surprised by their portrayal because I almost expected it to be much more of like a, what is that movie, Scream, I think, where they have like the hood. The white face. Well, well not even that so much. It's just like a very triangular hood with like a black kind of hole where the face would be. Mm-hmm. Instead, they went for like almost like this like ski mask type, like very shorn, like there's eye holes, mouth. It was just a very different um, display than I anticipated. I I liked it. Um, I I think like in my mind, in the books, you would never actually see what a face looked like. Right. I was anticipating like a a heavily, yeah, heavily hooded. And instead, like, I like what they did. And like skeletal hands. Right. Yeah. Um, the one thing I didn't like so much, I don't like the whole, like, the face-sucking thing. I don't, I don't like that effect. I don't know what I would have liked better, but I didn't like that. Like, I get I, what they're doing. It it, portray, it 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 viscerally portrays your happiness or your being kind of being sucked happening. away. And, like, you know, Harry's chest later on, like, you know, kind of. Does, I'm like, like trying the, to think of something in comparison movie-wise, and I can't think of something where you like you just see like I don't know. I I'm not a fan of the weird like stretchiness of it, but yeah, I'm not sure what a better option would be. We go to Hogwarts. Frog choir. Love the frog choir. Love the frog choir. Hagrid is now a professor. Hagrid's now a professor. But before we get there, before we get there, because that's not the thing that happens next. The thing that happens next is one Michael Gambon glides to the lectern with this grandiose, very aggressive hand gesture and loudly starts talking. And I just felt, I felt empty inside. It just bad, so bad. Like so... And it's not that he is a bad actor. I don't want to it's say just, that necessarily. He's not he, Dumbledore. Yeah, like it, everything about his choices, his movements, his intonation, his 
his eye movement, his every everything just does not capture the essence of who I believe Albus Dumbledore is. And even if you want to be like, Stephen, I don't care about your book nonsense, focus only on the movies. Well, we had Richard Harris, who is a very different Dumbledore. And I'm not saying Michael Gammon had to get up there and do a, a Richard Harris kind of cosplay. He obviously can and did put his own spin on it, but it feels like two completely different characters. Yes, because it's almost like Gambin's portrayal of Dumbledore, how he carries himself kind of like asserts power. Whereas I feel like Dumbledore has power, but it isn't like shown off. I don't know how to describe what well, I, I, I liken it. All right, I'm going to give a couple different examples here. One that's like a theoretical you don't have to have seen a show for and one from a show because I'm watching it currently. The show I'm watching currently, Peaky Blinders. For anyone who's seen Peaky Blinders, um, Thomas Shelby, Killian Murphy, the main character, is like Richard Harris's Dumbledore. Somebody who doesn't need to announce themselves to have their presence felt. Michael Gambon, his Dumbledore, is like Arthur Shelby, Tommy's brother, who feels the need to be the loudest person in the room to make sure everybody knows he's there. The theoretical example there just being, think about any classroom you were in or sports team you were on or any sort of club group activity that you've been a part of in your life. There was always one person, maybe it was you, who felt the need for whatever reason to make people gravitate towards them. And you did that through being loud, being showy, being Austin, like whatever, right? Like you, for in some way, shape or form, you announced your presence. Then in that same group, there was always the person that everybody naturally gravitated towards and they didn't need to speak up or be the loudest. And that's what Michael Gammon just does not understand about Albus Dumbledore at all. That's exactly what I was trying to say. Just not as well as you did. Do you think we would feel differently had we not had Richard Harris as an option and it was always Gambin? Well, uh, no, no. And here's why. I'm going to say no, and then I'm going to use a deeply unfair comparison. Alan Rickman as Severus Snape is not at all the Severus Snape from the books. That said, Alan Rickman had the most immaculate performance, I think, that's been on film in modern times. Michael Gambon's portrayal, irrespective of Richard Harris, is not the Albus Dumbledore that we see in the books. That said, it's so far from the essence of the character that it's hard for me to understand it. Like, like Alan Rickman's portrayal, I think, still captures the very essence of who Snape is, yeah, but just in yes. a very different way. It's very different, but it still feels true to the character. If I am complimenting Michael Gambin from this scene, and I, I made sure to write down at least two or three compliments for the man throughout this throughout this watching, I do really like the happiness can be found in the darkest of times of when I remember to turn on the light when he kind of flickers his hand over the flame. I like that a lot. The delivery was good. The movement was good. Like everything about that was good. Well done, sir. If you're listening, I know I've said some bad things about you in the past and I will continue to for the rest of this episode and beyond. That was a good scene. Other good scene. 
get a really great putter from Tom Felton in the Great Hall, um, which only has felt more accentuated recently because I don't know if anyone else here follows Tom Felton on TikTok. He has been duetting a lot of people doing their best putter and he'll like react to it and then do his own. And it's very funny. So when are we getting the Muggle and Khakis Potter TikTok? I will do that whenever Tom Felton comes on that podcast. Done. Deal. You get Tom Felton on this podcast and I will go, I will do anything. Um, new I fat will... lady. New fat lady. Yes. How do you feel do about you really her? I like her. Yeah, I like her. I think, I think she's fun. I think she's flirty. Because here's the thing. Again, I don't want to be like a, I hate, I really don't want to be like in the books kind of, but in the books, the fat lady is like this, like body flirtatious drunk. Doesn't she get drunk a lot? Yeah. Her friend Violet. Yeah. And the original fat lady was just too old to ever. Very posh. Right. Like would not have been seriously considered as like, like a drunken flirt. Whereas this one absolutely nails it. I wish we would have had her from the start rather than the password. Well, I, I think. Yeah, you know, I I agree, but that's one of those characters where I don't think it matters necessarily. No, it doesn't matter. Right, like if it wasn't for the fact that I was paying attention, I don't know if I would have realized it was a different fat lady. Yeah, and this movie is like the only movie where she really matters in scene work. From this establishing kind of shot as they're going through the castle, again, how many how many floors are there in Hogwarts? Because there's that one vertical, looks like a crane shot where they're kind of panning up through the stairwells. Mm-hmm. And it looks like it's like a 30 floor castle, which I can't be the case. I was like trying to figure out, I was like looking at it, I'm like, what was the choice to put like this elevator shaft in the middle of the building yeah. with staircases everywhere? Because that's what it looks like. It's like a square room with random staircases. However, we do have a great one line from our good friend, Ginny Weasley, as a child. She gets one line thrown in. What'd she say? It was the fat lady's gone. But like, because of our um, other scenes that she has that we're not fans of. I was like, oh, hey, she did really well in that one line where she ran down the stairs. Um, Okay, you're skipping ahead there, my friend. I'm sorry. You're I was skip- just thinking. You just jumped. Was- you just jumped like a solid three quarters of my notes page here. <laughs> we all I'm saying. I was just thinking of the hallway, and I guess I did really did jump there, but my brain was on. The, uh, fair enough. The fair, fair enough. Because um, the next scene in my notes is a really good scene. It's a it's a scene invented for the movies where the boys are up in Gryffindor dormitory trying all those different candies. Which one of the things that teenagers. yeah, Quaron really nails this, and I think Mike Newell picks it up, and David Yates does really well as well as like British boarding school kind of day to day sensibilities, like all of them hanging out doing all the like the candies later on when they're walking to and from care magical like there's a lot of moments like that where he they really nail what it's like to just be like at a British school. My question for you, though, the candies are intimated to be like they turn you into like an animal for like five seconds or whatever, because there's an elephant, there's a lion, 
what animal is Harry? Because Harry has steam come out of his ears and makes a noise like a train. I don't which think he's last animal. time I checked, a train is not an animal. In my head, he had a different kind of candy. But I don't know if it was at one of the panels somewhere. I think it was Neville's character. Like they changed the type of animal that he was making noises for. And it like completely doesn't. I don't know if it was a panel. It was somewhere that I heard him talk about that. That sounds familiar. Uh, but yeah, I, I just assumed that they were all animal candy because they were all making noises like animals. And then Harry has steam come out of his ears and makes like a train kind of whistle. Anyhow, that's neither here nor there. I thought that scene was very good. Um, like a nice little button scene. Um, divination. Emma Thompson, flawless. Absolutely. Always. Like one of the things that these movies do very well is, I don't know if the right word is guessed because I don't think that's the right terminology, but like, you know, Divination, Trelawney, Slughorn with potions, um, any of the Defense Against the Dark Arts professors, these like kind of like not necessarily one shot, but you know, high, high impact, low screen time characters. They do a remarkable job. And the introductions of those characters. I have in my notes that like this movie might be the movie with the most intros to characters that are almost lead characters in a way. Like we get Lupin, we get Sirius, we get Trelawney. Like there's a lot of big name characters that aren't necessarily like a lead, but are strong characters that we return to regularly. And there's a lot of introduction having to happen in this specific movie. The next scene we get is Care of Magical Creatures. I already talked about Harry flying. And again, I think there's an interesting parable there, a setup of like Buckbeak, Harry feels misunderstood. When Harry and Buckbeak ride across the lake, he feels freed and he feels liberated, you know, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, anything else you want to touch on from Care? It's. It's a good scene with the monster book of monsters. Yeah, good scene. That that felt true to the books. You're a smart person. I have never once understood this for as many times as I've watched the movies. When Harry's talking about Lupin on the bridge, mm-hmm. and Lupin says, "You know, the only thing you fear is fear itself." That's very wise. What the hell does that mean? Because Harry seeing in in Harry seeing a Dementor doesn't mean he fears fear. It could just mean he fears these freaking terrifying looking floating death monsters. Like, yes, I, I, I think the connection is that when you are around a Dementor, you are brought back to your worst memory, which in turn could be a fear of yours. So like it's his parents I, I know it's a convoluted, I don't understand like why that was, that, there's so many other options they could have gone with, but. Cause I just like, Harry could have been like, well, sure. But also these terrifying looking floating things want to suck my soul out. Things. Yes. Right. Like I'm just terrified of this floating death thing wanting to remove my soul. Yes, but at this point, we already know that he hears his mother yelling his name. I, mean, I, I know, but it's just... But I, I know, it's a weird line. It, I do yeah. enjoy the little Lupin Harry scenes. 
Like, so are, are you are you that. saying that you're pro implicit pedophilia? Because no. that's what those scenes feel like. I'm just saying all the scenes throughout the movie where Harry's alone with Lupin. Harry's alone with Lupin in his classroom at night. Harry's alone with Lupin on a bridge by himself. Harry's alone with Lupin in the freaking woods. It's very look. I'm just saying. A professor who he barely knows and a 13-year-old boy with no supervision alone. I understand that is where your brain goes. I think a lot of people's brains go there. Oh, yes, but I like to take it as this is a friend of his father's. He has not had a male role model at all in his life is finally connecting with an adult that can tell him about his own parents. But we never get the establishing scene to set that up. Because again, we never the get train... the martyr story. We never get we yeah. don't like that that's and... my that's my issue is all those yes. scenes can be explained away if there's some scene if we have the background. Right. Instead you get this oh I knew your parents you have your mother's eyes and you're a troublemaker like your dad. Like and that doesn't I mean come on. Um, all right, we got to skip ahead of here because otherwise we're going to be here all night. Um, the portrait, Sirius Black, you already touched on Ginny's good line. Ron had another good one there where he's like, serves her right. She was a terrible singer. Um, I thought that was funny. Um, it's also the Neville line. Also a good Neville line. Really bad Dumbledore moments where he's like pushing through the crowd like with like, an, like a harsh, barking, angry voice. Didn't like that. Um, Defense Against the Dark Arts with Severus Snape, probably one of the most iconic scenes in the film series. Does this movie have like the most quotable lines to it? Probably that we see a lot of because we had take her away. Gonna be a bumpy ride. There's three lines in this movie that are regularly used. The Dumbledore quote. Okay, I also use it. Take her away, Ern. It's gonna be a bumpy ride. Well, in Steven's world, yes. The page 394. If you ordered a pea soup, better eat it before it eats you. <laughs> three, three and a half, two and three quarters. Yeah! I'm going to just record, save like clips of you yelling these random things. Yeah, no, you're you're, you're right though. Um, and then we have the Azkaban quote. Also expecto Patronum. That's a pretty big one in and of itself. Um, yeah, you're right. This movie is very quotable. Um, yeah, another really good, just British boarding school boys being boys thing. When Malfoy passes the note to Harry in defense against dark arts. I love, cause that's like a very real thing. We've all been there. I mean, for you, it was like, you know, a quill and an ink kind of well or whatever from the they're 1700s. They're using quills and ink wells. I know, but they're meant exactly because they're meant to be in this like classical, like, like post, like, I don't even know what type of society the exact same one you grew up in, in colonial America. Anyhow, um, what I love about it though, is they go the extra step of like bringing like that little magic into it with the, you know, with the magic on the note, with the lightning hitting hat. That was really cool. Like a minor thing that they didn't need to do, but was a really cool thing that they portrayed. Which brings us to Quidditch. RIP to my boy, Cedric Diggory, who. See, here's the thing. Here's the thing they don't really explain with this though. So first off, the actor who is playing Cedric Diggory in this movie gets electrocuted and one would assume falls to the ground. That said, 
Hufflepuff catches the snitch and wins the Quidditch match. So how does that all jive? Because theoretically, dead non-Robert Pattinson Cedric is on the ground convulsing because he got struck by lightning. How can he catch the snitch? I don't understand that. Maybe he caught it on his way down. No, Um, because there's enough time for Harry to fly seemingly to like Ireland before the Dementors show up. So that's, look, visual effect thing that just didn't work for me. I was channeling your brain during the scene. Oh, let's hear it. Let's hear it. And they were in a storm and it was very foggy and I, my brain went to binge mode and <laughs> I didn't even, I didn't even think about that. Oh, holy crap. Yeah. I mean, the Dementor sex funk is just, oh, Dementors did the dirty. So here, look, the actual critique I'll give. God damn it. Pneumonia. Oh, let me start over. The actual critique that I'll give when Harry falls and Dumbledore does the arresto momentum thing, Harry's falling straight down, which means that Harry was flying straight up. However, when Harry is flying away with Cedric Diggory, who's not Robert Pattinson, and then the electrocution, and Harry flies even further before the ice hits his broom and the Dementors show up, Harry's very clearly flying on a diagonal. And not straight vertically, which means that he's flown away from the Quidditch pitch. So I don't, it doesn't matter, but I don't understand how he falls straight down onto the Quidditch pitch, even though he clearly flew very far away from the pitch. Doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. It also doesn't wholly make sense. Sequentially, it doesn't make sense. The way they end that scene with, the black coming in like Harry is passing out, but the POV is from Dumbledore's perspective. The reason they do that is so they can set up the next shot, which is Harry's eyes opening in the hospital bed, which fair enough, that was really, really cool, but wrong character, right? The scene then should have been from Harry's perspective, him falling, almost hitting the ground or something. So that didn't fully jive, but I like the effect of Harry opening up from black in the bed. Broom is destroyed. Hufflepuff wins. Stephen rejoices. Although not Cedric has been electrocuted. Yeah. Um, she's the, the eraser of Hufflepuff from the Harry Potter movie series is really just pathetic. That's not there. Um, Harry's alone in the woods with Lupin. We already talked about that. Mm-hmm. We can move on. Hogsmeade. So this brings up a theme throughout the movie, <laughs> which we've already talked about in a couple different places, but there's just some things that they do throughout this movie where Alfonso Cuaron chooses to break a lot of rules and they do it for visual effect. And the visual effect is really cool, but if you think about the rule they're breaking, it makes no sense. So for example, Harry is walking through Hogsmeade with a lollipop. Harry's under the invisibility cloak. All you can see is the lollipop, which means you should also see Harry's hand holding the lollipop or the lollipop should be under the invisibility cloak with Harry. They do it so they have the visual effect of the lollipop moving by itself. I understand that, 
But if and you that think he can about track it, Harry. Right. If you think about it logically for a second, it makes no sense. The same way Harry doing magic outside of school in his bed when he's masturbating with Lumos Maxima makes no sense. Right? Like I understand what they're what he's doing. Like that's like one of the biggest themes of this movie for me is Alfonso Coron just breaking rules, and it's fine. It's a really cool effect. But from like a canonical like magic standpoint, it just does not jive. I don't know why this bothers me so much and it always has is that like the students don't get to go to Hogsmeade very often why the hell does the the, um three broomsticks close the one day the students are in town that's where they're gonna make their money yeah that's true so that always bothered me I'm like that makes no business sense Um, and then of course our lovely minister of magic just telling the barkeep So, so a lot of things happening here. Madame Rosmerda, first and foremost, let me just say, no shots at the lovely actress who seems to be a very attractive woman. The books portray Madame Rosmerda to be this like very objectively blessed, um, uh, blessed woman. There you go. We'll, we'll use that. We'll use that phrasing. Um, and she's attractive, but She's not like this, like jaw dropping, stunning She's looking not woman. Ron is having his like. Ron's not about. Lumos Maximing to, to this Madame Rosmerda. So that was kind of interesting. But yeah, as we talked about this podcast so many times in the past, Fudge, the Minister for Magic, the Prime Minister, the President, the leader of their society, just getting drinks with like a couple random professors and a bartender, and then choosing to reveal state secrets. This is bizarre. Very bizarre. Um, another bizarre thing that I kind of th- hooked onto for the first time here when watching the movie today was the, the concept of Godfather existing within the wizarding world. And I say that because while the books and the movies accordingly have a lot of subtextual Judeo-Christian values explicitly there is no religion in Harry Potter. Like there's not, there's never like any sort of utilization of churches or, or cross ephemera or active religion. There's a lot of subtextual stuff, right? Obviously the death, like there's a lot of stuff, but like the concept of a godfather, which is a Christian concept, like Jews don't have godfathers, right? Like other, like other religions don't have godparents like that. That being a thing in the wizarding world was odd to me. It could also be because Lily is muggle-born that she didn't, like, it could be something more from her past and because of how close he was. But then to that point, when Slughorn is told that Hermione's parents are dentists, Slughorn has no idea what the hell a dentist is, which doesn't make any sense, but doesn't know what a dentist is. Therefore... Would any of these wizards know what a godparent yeah, is? Yeah, so there has to be some correlation there. So I thought that was interesting because, again, subtextually, there's religion all throughout this series. But, mm-hmm. you know, on text, on page, there is no active religion. But this is a religious concept. So I thought that was interesting. Um, and that it's known. Like, why does the Minister of Magic? Yeah. So, Like, look. I understand McGonagall being aware of this. Because sure. like, in my head, she was at the wedding. Like, Sure. It just, it, it's an odd concept to be like, kind of like the defining kind of pivot of the movie. 
right? Is that, oh, this mass murderer doesn't just work for Voldemort. He's Harry's godfather. Well, and they make it to the point where it sounds like he's an actual relative, not just was given this random title that may or may not mean anything. And I get I get that's what they're going for. So obviously, like, and I understand J.K.R. writing this, like, yeah. godfather is, like, Instead of having to be like, oh, it's my uncle, not my uncle. Like, I get it's a lot harder to say godparent. So fair enough. It just, it's an odd. It's a weird, yeah. And it's the first time I've ever really thought about that. So there's my smart take for the movie. Funny thing I want you to think about. The scene at um, the Three Broomsticks when Harry's under the invisibility cloak. I am sure they shot those scenes separately. So Harry under the cloak and or realistically probably just the camera. Right, and then McGonagall, Rosemarida, you know, fudge. Mm-hmm. But just imagine for a moment if they actually film those scenes together. So they're having their like surreptitious, dramatic, climactic scene, and Daniel Radcliffe's just over on the side underneath a green blanket, <laughs> like just standing there, kind of creepily moving back and forth. Yeah. I I had that image come in my head as I was watching it. It was the funniest thing I've ever <laughs> thought of. No, that 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 is interesting. That would be very amusing. One more Hogsmeade thing I wanted to point out, um, and then that's all I got for Hogsmeade. Um, when I guess two more things from the same scene: sexual tension between Hermione and Ron. Ooh, do you want to move a little closer? What? I meant towards the street. Oh God! I look, we have all been there on like middle school field trips or anything of the sort. Where? Oh Jesus! Anywho, um, the Malfoy crew. Um, shout out to um, Bronson Webb is his name. He's the, I think Crab was the one we recognized. Yeah, Crab was with Malfoy. Goyle wasn't there for whatever reason. So there's this guy who's credited. His name is Pike. I looked it up. And his name's Bronson Webb. Uh, listeners may recognize him from the opening scene of Game of Thrones. He is one of the Rangers that goes out in season one, episode one. Winter is coming. Um, only to not return. Um, but yeah, he has had cameos in two of the biggest franchises in the world, Game of Thrones and Harry Potter. I thought that was fun. Anything else on your end from Hogsmeade? Um, it was really cool to always see, like it's the first time we see Hogsmeade. So it's a fun welcome to this very wizarding, because at this point we've only seen Hogwarts as this is where wizards live. So it was definitely like the first time. You, well, there's also Diagon, but it's always fun to just see Hogwarts and Hogsmeade and the new set. So next we go to Professor Lupin's office. And all I'm saying, I don't need to rehash it again, but the man has spine candles in his office and is handing loose chocolate out of his pocket to a 13-year-old boy. There are no red flags being raised here. The man has spines as candles. I'm just. There's an alternate universe where Lupin is like a pedophiliac serial killer. And all the pieces are there. That's all I'm saying. They're all there. Uh, sorry, I'm rewinding because I was curious about the crap Goyle thing is um, the actor who played Goyle, Josh Herdman, was injured halfway through this movie. Um he injured his arm and as a result was forced to drop out the filming for the action sequences in this movie. Oh, I didn't know that. And that's why they refer, they added 
Pike in to cover that role that he couldn't do those bigger scenes. Did not know that. Good, good find. Thank you, Google. Good find, Danielle. Um, the other thing I'll say about the Lupin scene here, never mind all the crazy theories I have. When Harry's like, I chose the first time I wrote a broom, and Lupin's like, that's not good enough, not nearly good enough. Who are you to tell someone what's happy enough or not happy enough? It's their own memory. Especially with his life. Like. It's, it's, it's his own lived experience. Who are you to say yeah. what value that memory has? That wasn't very nice. Yeah. Prophecy time. Um, and I say that only because I fast-forwarded through a fair amount of this movie. Uh, um, but the next thing I have is the prophecy. So mm-hmm. I'll just say on Emma Thompson's performance... Uh, that little choke cough thing she does afterwards. Or love like that. Cat hairball. Yeah, I was like, it's like a yeah. hairball from a cat. Yeah, that was great. Uh, here's my question. Can a prophecy be delivered if she's alone? Because for instance, you know, in the Hall of Prophecy, in the Department of Mysteries, that whole thing, right? Dumbledore says like the initials are the who said the prophecy and who they said it to. But like, let's just say Harry doesn't come back with that crystal ball to her classroom is she still predestined to give that prophecy just out into the ephemera, out into the ether right there and then, or does it have to be to someone else? That's a good question. Like initially I want to say yes. And because of that, there are a bunch of prophecies that were never heard, but also from everything we know, they were all, well, Obviously, we're not going to know the ones that weren't spoken. To or if a tree falls and no one's around. And she doesn't it, it doesn't remember it. Yeah. Right. Like, and that, she doesn't recall it. So no one knows. Right. So it's a, is a prophecy triggered by like a coinciding of physical events or can a prophecy occur? You know, like that's what I'm saying. And right? does like, someone that is hearing the prophecy have to be in some way linked to those future events? Another good question. I would go with no on that ladder, right? Because the only the one prophecy that we have a lot of examples with is the prophecy to which I would I would say Dumbledore is not central to the events. People would say, well, he obviously heavily is influenced by them, but the prophecy is very specifically about Voldemort and Harry. It is said to Dumbledore, so therefore I would say no. I would but say it's also linked to them, and so is Snape, who only hurt. Yeah, that. but then but then could you say? someone's fourth cousin hears the prophecy and technically mm-hmm. they're linked to him. Yeah. That's a little bit of, a I'm going to go with no on that, but still TBD on can a prophecy just be said be given with, without, without a recipient. Yeah. Um, next thing I have in my notes is the shrieking shack. Is that where you're at? Yes. Um, kids don't, don't go to jail. Don't do crime. Uh, not because crime is bad or because, anything but did you see Sirius's teeth when Harry has them on the ground <laughs> Sirius's teeth those are dentists rough. would come in handy yeah like yeah I mean look there's a lot of issues in the world but the condition of of inmates of Azkaban's teeth is really bad it is um also Harry struggling this whole movie to be able to Creative Patronus flings Snape across the room with a spell. Well, that seemed... th- that, well, Patronus is a whole different type of magic. It is, but it's just like, would he really like? 
Well, so long as we're talking, is disarming, but Snape is the one that goes flying. Like he. Well, so so long as we're talking about uses of magic, either by or towards professors and adults. Later on in the movies, right? There is this like elite reverence that's given to like Dumbledore and Snape and like their capabilities as wizards. Mm-hmm. Right, like we're led to believe that Snape is like one of the most powerful wizards to ever have walked the earth. Yes. However, I know I'm skipping ahead of this scene a little bit, but when Wolfie Remus is approaching the students and Snape puts his arms out, at no point during that vignette does Snape attempt to do magic. And like feels like even a base competent wizard much less one of the most proficient wizards of like his generation would have been doing some magic to repel wolfie boy that's all i'm saying very true i still don't think harry could have especially because he doesn't have his own wand but now i'm thinking like did snape have a wand at this time because in the books i know he's like half passed out or right yeah he's he's like passed out yeah but in the movies he's very much he's alert but i'm not sure he still has his wand his wand well, hmm. I suppose that's the only thing that makes any sense. Yeah. Because otherwise, I can understand being momentarily shocked, right? That like this werewolf's coming at you, but like between like not even the three of them, on. the four of them, I guess Harry's probably not going to do magic against Lupin. Fair enough. Ron has demonstrated time and time again he doesn't. Ron's think. also decapitated with his. Well, leg. not decapitated. That means his head's cut off. That too. You mean incapacitated. That, yes. Decapitated that is what they tried to do to nearly headless Nick that would have made him headless. Do you also notice that, like, randomly they're playing, like, the headless hunt through the castle and scenes with the ghost all yeah, the time? Yeah, well, that feels, feels like a, it doesn't make any sense for it to be, but it feels like a holdover to where, like, they were like, oh, yeah, we definitely included the headless hunt and the death day party yeah. in chamber. Therefore, this makes sense in Prisoner, but it doesn't make any sense because they left it out of the last one. Um, other Shrieking Shack thoughts. David Thewlis, incredible. I don't think I've appreciated enough his acting quality. I always appreciate that he very much embodied Lupin well, but his physical movements, the way he moves his eyes and uses his eyes, the way when he approaches Snape and Snape threatens him, he does that like hands movement where he backs away and like his hands kind of get very timid and kind of... it's. Within the character, Gary Oldman, nothing, this is not a shot at him. He is amazing, but he is the one that gets so much credit during this movie. But I do I, love the casting of Lupin. I will also say Gary Oldman did not yet find the serious voice in this movie. If you listen to him talk in The Shrieking Shack, like he, he's working on it. And, and having seen Gary Oldman and a lot of other stuff, I was like, is that Commissioner Gordon and or Winston Churchill? Mm-hmm. Um, and um, he was still working on finding the voice. He wasn't there yet. One of the other actors, and this is very side actory, that never gets any like praise. Filch does great. Oh, like, Wal- Walter Frey. Yeah, he nails it. He always nails that character, and I didn't think about it until I saw him more in this movie. I'm like, we never talk about him outside of we can't stand Filch. I talk he about does, him all the time with his manacles and what he does with Mrs. Norris. Yeah, well, beyond that, that has nothing to do with his acting and the character. He does amazing. Um, last couple thoughts I have here um, to what you said earlier, Ron being like 
well, you know, they, they, they might amputate. Like classic, just give me a sympathy kiss is the word I'll use. Um, right, give me some sympathy love in here. Uh, and then, again, another strong Rupert Grint moment when Lupin, werewolfy Lupin, is approaching them. Ron is, like, muttering and pleading, nice doggy. Like, he's saying nice doggy, nice doggy, which is the funniest thing. Um, I, I Rupert Grint's comedic timing throughout this movie is like probably the best it's going to be the rest of the series. I love he it. He really found Ron in this movie. They all, as you said it earlier, yes. they all really found their characters and demonstrated they could act as adults. I loved it. Um, the very last note I have, because then I kind of just stopped paying attention to the rest of the movie is, and I'll read it verbatim. Okay, Gambin in the hospital wing was good. Um, when, That's praise from you. Yeah, it really is. When Dumbledore is instructing them on how to use the time turner and all that stuff, that was a good scene. If he could have channeled that energy for the rest of his performance across the series, I would have tolerated Dumbledore, Gambit Dumbledore. Um, that was a good scene, I thought. Um, I know some people have quibbles with the way he's like, like assaulting Ron's broken leg, but I thought it was funny. I thought it was great. Because that's the kind of mindless thing Dumbledore would do. Not paying attention. Right. Like, yeah. And he doesn't mean it with malice. Uh, like, <sighs> just not thinking about it. It's just, yeah. yeah. Um, but that's all I got for the rest of this movie. I'll gladly talk about whatever you want to talk about. But my One notes of the are, things, are done. And it is because Ron is stuck in the hospital wing. I loved the Harry Hermione friendship that you're seeing once they've used the time turner, like them just being there for each other. And you're really seeing like that friendship that has grown and what it's becoming. Like, you know, Harry pulling her Hermione along and vice versa, them just being there for each other and trusting each other. And I just really enjoyed seeing their friendship because you don't usually, you, you see them as a trio all the time and you see some Ron, well, you see the whole drama of Ron and Harry but you only get a few glimpses of the Hermione Harry true friendship outside of we miss Ron in the last movies. Well, it's funny now that you say it because, you know, in, in Deathly Hallows when they, when Ron and Harry and Hermione have their big blow up because Ron is jealous and thinks Hermione shows in Harry. It, they, they build it up for like 10 minutes in that movie and that's really it. But it feels like this is the starting point where you really understand the dynamics of the friendship because Harry and Hermione very much are the critical thinking, strategic, fast moving and no disparaging to Ron. But Ron's kind of like the blow it up now, think later, like lagging friend. do well friend. with Seamus and Neville. Right. And there's no shots at that. But No, there's nothing. They really could have seeded that moment in Deathly Hallows a lot more throughout the rest of the series if they had used this moment in Prisoner as a, like a diving board and a jumping off point. Um, that's a really good call out. It just You don't get to see that friendship happening. And with Ron being absent through such a significant portion of that movie, you really just see how they interact with each other and that they are just there for each other in every way. Cause it's even like, there's like little things like when Lupin's coming as a werewolf and Harry like pulls Hermione behind him and protecting her. And then like Hermione, when she's pulling Harry to like get out of the way. And there's just all these little moments that I don't know if I've ever registered prior of that friendship there. Um, 
trying to think because most of these scenes now we are just looking at from a different perspective. One of the things that did bother me is when like there's that whole Hermione saying, oh, she overheard Snape talking about how it's so hard to conjure this Patronus. It is it's only seen as a light. It is never shown as prongs. And like they talk about how they're like, oh, prongs wrote again. It's just the light. You never see it as a. Oh, yes, you do. When mm-hmm. yeah, you do. You see, you see the the antlers or whatever when Harry comes back around. It's like the second time when you see it after the time turner. Did I miss that? Because I really just saw it was all light. Yeah, well, it, it doesn't. It doesn't fully gallop across the water the way you expect it to. It kind of just yeah. explodes into light that kind of emanates across. But yeah, I'm pretty sure you see, like, from Harry's perspective, I think, kind of the backside of Prongs with the antlers. I thought you did. Again, I fast forwarded through a bunch of shit, so I could be wrong. I'm going to have to rewatch it because I don't don't recall that part, and I was watching it, waiting for it. I thought you did, but it's neither here nor there. Yeah. Um, But that's all I really have for this movie. Who, uh, Who won the movie for you? Who won the movie? I'm going to have to stick with Lupin. I just really love the casting and the way he vocalizes the character. And just Lupin has always been one of my favorite characters. And I really just love this. There's also, this has nothing to do with this movie, but they did this thing where, um, what's the actor's name? I can never pronounce his last name. David Thewlis. Yes. He did this thing where he was reading part of the book and it was just beautiful. And I just like how he speaks and portrays this character. So I don't know if that necessarily means he won the movie, but he is one of the characters I enjoyed the most of this movie. What about for you? Yeah, I thought about saying the trio because... As I said from the opening note, they all grew up. I mean, this is the first movie where they're young adults rather than kids. And so this is the movie where they have to nail it. Right. Because if they don't nail this, if they don't nail this movie, there's probably conversations somewhere at Warner Brothers about what the hell do we do for the rest of the series. Yeah. So I really wanted to say them. That said, I think it has to be Alfonso Coron and his production team. Um because they completely reestablish the visual identity of Hogwarts, mm-hmm. the color palette and the, the aesthetic of the rest of the series. And set the stage. And look, there were a lot of times where I kind of got confused with where we were on the Hogwarts grounds. Like it doesn't all entirely track. Like I don't, it's hard for like, you know, okay, they're going out this castle door and then there's like a cliff here versus a, a bridge. And I didn't fully follow all of it, but I didn't need to. Um, yeah. Alfonso Coron is responsible for the rest of the visual identity of the Potter franchise. Um, and so he, he has to be the winner for me just on that alone. Uh, there were a lot of great acting performances um, as we've covered, but I think by and away, um, Coron, what about, what about your favorite scene from the movie? I love the Bogart scene. It's just so well done. And Snape as Neville's grandmother, I love the choice of music. It's just so fun. And a scene that could have just been very like draggish to like 
add the music and just make it this fun little scene. But I think that's probably close to the top is that whole scene. Yeah, I like that one. I think if I'm going with purely the best scene, I think for me it has to be the Snape Defense Against the Dark Arts class because mm-hmm. um, that is just outstanding. Oh, that's a master class right there. If, if I'm going for my favorite, it's got to be the Night Bus. The Night Bus is, as you've said, there are so many things from this movie that people quote, they reenact, they they talk about all the time. For me, the Night Bus is probably what I say more than anything. Like Even if I'm not saying it to someone else, like if I'm on a call for work and someone says, I'm going to hand it over to you know, to Samantha, who's going to talk through slides five and six, take her away, Sam. In my head, I'll be like, take her away, Sam. You know, like, <laughs> like I do that all the time. So for me, it's got to be that. Um, yeah. Um, what about the thing that most surprised you having just watched Prisoner of Azkaban? I liked it more this time around. Um. I never chose to return to this movie because I do have such strong connections to this book. And it might just have been the age that I was reading prisoner and that it's the one that like first really clicked with me. Um, I remember first seeing this movie and I hated seeing the Wampum, but Whomping Willow change the scenes. It drove me insane. It would get me so mad. I'm like, they could have cut that out and added another scene. But it didn't bother me as much this time. Um, I'm still not sold on the design of the Whomping Willow. But I liked it more than I was expecting to. My most surprising thing about this movie is probably, this is a weird answer, that I haven't talked about some of my favorite motifs from this movie throughout this whole episode yet. So that's what I'm going to do now. Um so you brought up the Whomping Willow. I love the fact that they use the Whomping Willow to demonstrate the changing seasons and time progression throughout the movie. I think I it's really smart. It they do linger on it a bit, fair enough. But I think it's a really brilliant visual way of symbolizing progression throughout the movie. I also really love the time motif. Right. I think I saw in hearing the clock. Right. I obviously didn't do the math, but if you were to add up all the minutes of the movie and then all the minutes where you either can hear or see some version of a clock, Mm -hmm. it's got to be close to 50% of the time. Um, It's so smartly done um, because they're, they're seeding the whole time. The fact that people are playing with time and the consequences of, what if you did this instead of this? And what if you played with time and all this stuff? That said, I don't love that you can just see Hermione wearing the time turner throughout the movie. Because Hermione has never once worn body jewelry. Not body, gaudy. Gaudy jewelry. I feel like at some point, even thick as pig shit Ron would have been like, Hermione, what is that? Right, like at some point, somebody has to say, "What is this massive piece you've got around your neck that you've never worn before?" I, I, I don't understand. That. I can give or take because at that age, that is when a lot of girls are adding. No, but like in the movie, yeah, but also are- at that age, people lose all tact. So again, if someone's wearing something that's out of the ordinary, 
someone's going to be like, hey, what the heck is that? Yeah. Like no one, um, like now you have the, the, the nuance and subtlety of adults of being like, oh, I'm clocking that. I'm noticing that, but I'm not going to say anything. Yeah. Right, but as a kid, well, you're in, not. You're in not the that, books, that aren't there like little side references? Like they saw her, t- oh, she did, like right. she appeared yes. and she was tucking yes. something into her clothes. In the movie, you can just straight up see it it's on her It's just straight up hanging out. Yeah. You don't see her like tucking. Yeah. Yeah, no. That's all I got. And I know you've watched them more recently. Expectations for Goblet of Fire. Oh, I'm going to hate Goblet of Fire so much. Oh, my goodness. It is such a bad movie. Uh, I mean, it's it's bad. It's it's obvious in a way. So, like, for instance, the way I said, like, if you hadn't, if you'd already seen Prisoner of Azkaban, Mrs. Weasley handing off scabbers and saying, don't lose this, right, is, like, blatantly obvious. But if you haven't seen Prisoner before, it doesn't really mean much. Yeah. Goblet. They open the dang movie by giving away the whole plot. The bad guy. <laughs> so the rest of the movie, you already know who the bad guy is. So I'm not looking forward to it. I am looking forward to doing the bum 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 bum. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna force I'm gonna I'm gonna force you. You'll gladly give it away. I'm going to force you to let me edit that episode because I'm going to insert that band into like every third minute of that episode. Um, every time there's a really good comment, you'll just yeah. intro it. Yep. It's just going to be randomly inserted. Um, that movie's not good. Uh, that movie. Y- y'all think I'm pretty negative on the movies and fair enough. I am. That one might be the floor. I'm curious to see how that turns out. Bad. 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 All right. right. Y'all don't forget at Creating Magic Podcast on Instagram, Creating Magic Podcast at gmail.com. Leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars. Uh, If you leave a kind review, I will be sure to read it on the podcast. That's, of course, incumbent on Danny telling me we had a review because I don't really do much work for this podcast. That's all on her. Um, Yeah, we will see y'all next time. (laughs) 